Welcome back to the Coaching Kernan Show, episode 10. It's June 21st, 2022. We're back with our resident expert segment in the clubhouse. I'm Dave D'Agostino, your host and coach. I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer, 47 years with the New York Post, and now writing two articles a week with Ball9.com. Kevin, we had a great interview yesterday with Fred Clare. Um, what, what were some takeaways from that that you could share with our audience today? Well, my biggest takeaway is if you're listening to this right now, shut it off and go listen to Fred Clare and then come back to us because uh, we'll probably the two will probably be uh, in sequence a little bit. And I'm sure we'll make references to that. So, yeah, my biggest takeaway other than that was, first of all, I, you know, I've known Fred for a long time. I think that's one of the best interviews I've ever heard with him. He really got down to, to the depth of articles and, and things that he was involved in, including the Rick Monday, Save the Flag. He, he was a, a, an important part of that whole story. Uh, obviously, the 88 Dodgers, how he built that team. And the biggest thing is something we've talked about frequently on this show, and that's why we try to teach these young kids and, and older kids and nerds Nerds, you can be saved. We, we're trying to save you. It's about character. It's about character, too, not just talent. And uh, and uh, Fred Clare uh, made that mission number one, and he won a championship as a result. Exactly. And, and as Kevin said, we're trying to build better baseball IQs with our audience here. And we're joined by our two resident experts who help us every week do that. And I hope our audience is appreciative of them. Our innovative performance coach, Sal Marinello. Sal, good morning. Welcome back to the show today. Um, glad to have you. Hope you had a great Father's Day. Yep, great, uh, great weekend. And to be honest with you, I was looking forward to today because the last of uh, the podcasts have been great, and I couldn't wait to get back after it, especially after you know hearing yesterday's show. Well, good. You've got a pitching question thrown at you today with youth baseball, so we're we're excited to hear about that and. Our other resident expert, our, our resident scout, 45 years in professional baseball as a scout, a player, and a coach. As you know, as part of our coaching current and witness protection program, we refer to him as Bull in the show. Bull, welcome back to the show again. I hope you had a great Father's Day as well this past weekend. I did, and uh, happy belated Father's Day to all the dads out there, and uh, glad to be back. Excited. Yeah. We want to also thank our sponsor one-on-one. Uh, they'll now be sponsoring our mailbag section, which will be coming up next. One-on-one is a recruiting service to help parents become the first educator in the recruiting process, approaching 550 successful recruiting ventures uh, with kids getting scholarships in men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball, and softball. Follow them on Twitter, one-on-one your shot on one, or one-on-one your shot on your terms on Instagram. Okay, guys, we'll enter the clubhouse right now and begin our mailbag segment. Will, we're going to lead off with you today, if that's okay. Great. Okay. Uh, yesterday on our, our podcast with Fred Clare, uh, he talked about a wonderful moment with a center fielder that doesn't often roll off the tongue uh, as the, one of the greatest center fielders of all time. So we had a question as a follow-up from yesterday's podcast to today. Augie from California wants to just very simply, Will, could you share your experiences about John Shelby? I will. And um, uh, what a, you know, what a moment where I think we all realize uh, the synergy in baseball where you walk into a ballpark or you talk to somebody in the six degrees of separation that, uh, oh, my gosh, yeah, I know him. I played with him. And as Fred started talking about that acquisition, I went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, John Shelby and I signed together. We played uh, in Bluefield, West Virginia, Miami, Charlotte. 
in the Baltimore Orioles system. We won championships in 1978 and 1980. Uh, not only was he a fabulous uh Baseball player, talented athlete, uh, but he was an unbelievable teammate and human being that possessed all the character uh, and traits and morals and values that you look at, uh, look for in a baseball player. John was drafted uh, by the Orioles out of Lexington, Kentucky. Kentucky, he's a, was a right-handed hitting shortstop. Uh Unbelievable athlete, tremendous basketball player, um, football player, baseball player, uh, was an 80 runner speed-wise, uh, absolutely could fly. And the Orioles said, uh, you know, your hands are not great as a shortstop, but you're going to become a center fielder. And the farm director and the scouting director said every day, John, we want you to go out and catch every ball you can off the bat in batting practice. And then you'll do your other work. And uh, by the way, you're going to learn how to switch hit as well. So <laughs> John Shelby being the, be, you know, being the person that he is, did that. And I watched it personally every day in 1977, 78, uh, 79, 80, 81, when we all played uh, we went to Instructional League. I watched them do it. Um, he made himself a gold glove center fielder. And he also made himself a uh, very quality major league hitter who could hit from both sides of the plate and switch hit. And uh, he never got down through struggles because when he was first learning to hit left-handed, um, and this is where patience and player development come, where, you know, our coaches and managers said, John, you're learning to switch it. You're going to strike out, but you got to keep, you got to stay with it. You got to stay positive. You got to get stronger. Your hands got to be trained differently than just what you did your whole life as a right-handed hitter. And he worked his way through it. And each year he'd cut his strikeouts down. Um, and then Fred mentioned something that, uh, we exchanged some texts earlier this morning. John Shelby, if he had a one-hopper back to the pitcher, he ran a 4-0 from the left-hand side every time. It didn't matter. If he hit a ball in the hole, he ran a 4-0. If he hit it right at the first baseman, he ran a 4-0. Um, that's something that's lost in our game now. Um, how many times we watch a game and we just see guys just jog and then all of a sudden – the ball gets bobbled, and then they try to run hard, and that's when they pull hamstrings and groins and everything else because they don't run hard. John did that. So uh, uh, one of my best teammates I ever played with, and, you know, love him like a brother. So that's John Shelby. And if, if you listen into yesterday's show with Fred, he shares a, a wonderful moment. I think it gave us all – chills when he talked about John signing. I won't spoil that. Go back and listen to that when he when he was traded from the Orioles to the Dodgers, that that moment of, you know, what he was waiting to hear for the first time in his life. So audience, go back to that Fred Clare interview and uh, and listen to that story. It'll, it'll, Dave, it'll let, me, let me jump in here. I want to yeah. check on something. Uh, Bull, you said he ran out every, every ball, huh? Wow. Yes, he, he did. He wasn't uh, posing. 
He wasn't uh, dogging it. He wasn't no. upset. He wasn't bat flipping. And no, none of that. Problem with today's game that you see all the time, and and plus there are writers out there. Uh, you know, I remember an article. I think you had shared it with me from a few years ago, where they mentioned that Bryce Harper doesn't need to hustle everything out. That's a right. joke. That's why the game stinks. And for the media, it's embarrassing. I won't even mention the name of the writer. It's embarrassing for the writer to write something like that. So no. all you kids out there, everybody playing the game, hustle it out. Somebody's watching, and uh, John Shelby is proof of that, and he has a world championship trophy. Actually, too. He was on the 83 Orioles World Series. That's team. right. That's right. And, um, and the other thing I will tell you, and and we met, we talked about Joe Madden last week. I loved his T-shirt that said "Respect the ninety, respect the ninety feet." I like that. Um, and 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 that's something that we don't see enough. Uh, that's just a lack of respect for the game, yourself, and your teammates when you don't run hard. I love that. Sal, go ahead. You wanted to say something. Well, yeah, and it goes to a bigger problem. You know, you, you, these people do not know how to run. And, you know, Kevin and I have traded videos over the years, whether it was a Yankee, a guy on a highlight on the sports center, whatever, you heard it, an injury, you went and looked at it. Th- these guys don't know how to run. I mean, we could, uh, there's a, a real quick, I don't want to derail us, but um, Machado did a job on his ankle, I believe it was Sunday. And if you watch the video, from the moment he leaves the box until the moment his foot hits the bag, he does everything wrong. And those are the things that lead to injury, not hustling and not running 100%. So it's it, we're a couple of levels away from uh, common sense here because you're looking at something that's uh, central to the game. It would almost be like, uh, you know, if you read an article about basketball and a guy said, well, why would you jump for the rebound when the guy had position on you and you knew you weren't going to get the ball anyway? Well, because you don't know you're not going to get the ball. You don't know that a fielder is going to make a certain play. So um, baseball has turned into this, um, what we've talked about it off air. Uh, they've become fr- uh, fragile by their attempts to, to fix all these problems. These guys are so fragile, they can't even do something that's uh, primary to the game without risking an injury. Bull, you, you mentioned kind of to Sal's point about what John Shelby's approach was during batting practice. I think there was a small story you started to touch on it where they cleared the outfield out and said, you know, what was his job during that? What was his, what was his task? He, he, he was incredible. Um, you know, pitchers have to shag during BP, or at least when I played, they did. Now when I go watch, they don't even shag. Nobody shags. They have bat boys out there shagging for them. But John literally would tell us, okay, uh, out of the way. He'd tell all the pitchers, because we all liked, we used to play a game called 100, where, you know, if you catch a ball in the air, it was two points, one point if you got it before it hit the wall. So that's how we would get extra running in and we would have fun. Um, but during the, the time that the T-Bone was, was out there doing his work, we knew to get out of his way and he was going to cover probably 30 yards from dead center each way. And he would get, get the balls and you would go, wow. And uh, I was the benefit of, being a pitcher of him catching a lot of gappers that would have fallen uh, in today's game with the mediocrity of outfield play. 
Um, and he was just, he, he was driven to be good at that, uh, the way great players were, were driven in those days. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was fun to watch. That's all I can say. Yeah, I think with that, I think it's, uh, leads us into the next question. We have Jackson from Chicago, Illinois for you, Kevin. Jackson's got two questions for you. Uh, he snuck two into one sentence. He wants to know, uh, you know, he says, Kevin, you have an old school mentality about the game that I love. When you were growing up and into college, who did you model your baseball game after? And then the second part is you became a very successful and currently are a successful writer. Who did you model your writing after? So two part question. Yeah, well, you know, we don't uh, we don't pre-question these. So let me think for a second. The uh, the baseball one's easy because uh, I grew up 1963. I'm 10 years old. So, you know, even before that, I started playing heavily around eight years old. So I was the Yankees. I was Mickey Mantle, you know, play wiffle ball, ball at the park. I did all that stuff. I was, um, you know, I did the whole Yankee lineup back then. You know, we all knew the lineup. So I would switch from player to player. And I think that's something that's been lost, too. I'm glad you asked that question because if you're if you're Mickey Mantle, you're swinging for the downs, you know. But if you're uh, you know if you're Hector Lopez or if you're um, you know um, Tom Trush had some power too, but he was a shortstop. You're making contact. So in a normal fun wiffle ball game and or playing with my friends, I'd be nine different guys. So I would have nine different attempts at a swing, maybe. Or maybe not that many, but I would I would learn how to hit the ball in different ways. Something that's been lost now, where it's one size fits all swing. You know, it, it, it really really annoys the hell out of me, and um, it's it's one of the reasons why. You know, I've been watching games. You know, it's it's a little hot here in Florida now, so I'm watching games. And you know, the Yankees Rays, for example, last night. You know, they were in the first four innings. Like the Rays struck out eight times, the Yankees struck out like five or six times, you know, so nobody's making contact. Nobody's putting the ball in play. When the ball is put in play, the Rays lost the game because of outfield play. Margot um, shot hit off the wall. Margot got there late, runs into the wall, hurts his knee, ball rolls around. Of course, there's nobody backing up the play. Uh, Joey Gallo, I want to compliment him. He backs up plays. He backed up a bad throw from Mayhew. The Yankees doing a lot of little things right. Uh, so that's what we're seeing in baseball now. These guys simply don't hustle uh, most of the teams. I watched the race uh, last week when they made three outfield errors in three games. And I'm not talking about tough plays. They dropped fly balls, the stuff you would see in the sandlot when the kid couldn't play. That's, that's what we're talking about here. And nobody gets on their case. So I'm, I'm getting a little uh, off on a tangent, but that's what I do. As for writing, uh, I, I was lucky enough when I was very young uh, as a writer not super young, but, you know, 25, 26-ish. I, uh, I would sit next to Red Smith at basketball games, the legendary writer, and I didn't model after anybody. you got to be yourself. But Red told me an interesting thing. I asked him, I said, uh, Red, why do you want to be a sports writer? And this is kind of like my uh, – this is the way I kind of did my deal. And he, he had a good sense of humor. So Red Smith says – and, again, you got to remember, this is like 1977 or so, 78. He goes, I wanted to live like a millionaire without the hassles. And uh, that's basically was my calling card. Uh, you know, live like a millionaire without the hassles. Get free travel everywhere, free games, front row seat for all the great games. It's a millionaire lifestyle. And uh, I just wrote myself. 
Red also said, you know, just put your hand. And back then we had typewriters, people. He said, put your uh, hands on the keys and let your wrist bleed. And that was basically essentially it. And I think, uh, again, um, good question. I'm glad I remembered all that stuff because I am getting older. <laughs> and then for the audience, we don't, uh, obviously, yeah, we don't preset the questions too. So you're getting authenticity from our resident experts here. W- Will, what about you? Who'd you, who'd you model your game after? Um, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. Um, Love to watch uh, Steve Carlton, uh, you know, win 27 games in 1972 on a team that won 54 games. So um, Sandy Koufax uh, and like Kevin, I would try to copy guys all the time. Um, when I when I signed with the Orioles, I tried to actually copy Palmer because it was such an athletic flowing delivery um, that I was but it was uh, so mechanically correct the way he balanced, the way he stayed directionally, the way he stayed on top of the ball, and I had a good curveball. So I tried to kind of pattern myself a little bit after that. And then wiffle ball-wise, I grew up uh, loving Roberto Clemente as a hitter, so I would always be the Pirates, and unfortunately, I hit right-handed, and they had too many left-handed hitters in their lineup. So my brother would kick my behind every day playing wiffle ball. So, yeah, I, I love Clemente too, and I think that's another one. Uh, certainly, I modeled some of the plays I tried to make in the outfield: the turn in the corner when he would throw, his uh, the, the hat flying off, the hustle. We model, you know, it sounds like we model ourselves after guys who did it right, and. Uh, how many guys are doing it right now that you can model after? So that's that's another issue, uh, another yeah, question. Not enough. Oh, yeah. My, mine was Cal and, and Donnie Baseball. I love those two. What about you, Sal? Uh, I was a catcher, and, you know, I had grown up when I had a very good start as a baseball player and was a pitcher, shortstop, center fielder. And um, the guy who turned out to be a, a – who was a huge influence on my athletic life was a rec, town rec – uh, department worker who saw me as a, a 12-year-old in Little League and decided I was going to be a catcher, which I didn't love because no one, you know, you're a center fielder, you're the shortstop, you're the pitcher, everyone sees you, you had long hair in the 70s, it looked good, and then I'm behind the plate, um, but it was great, I loved it, and my my favorite was uh, Jerry uh, uh, Johnny Bench and Jerry Grody. You know, I was a Met fan, um, and my like uh, we called him Wally. His name was Phil Krug. He, he played at my high school and played at South University of South Carolina. And um, he used to say that if you want to catch, you have to know how to play defense. And, you know, those were the two guys who, you know, when I was a kid were recognized as best defensively. I think Jerry Grody was a little under the radar because he didn't have the flash that Johnny Bench did and obviously wasn't the offensive player. But that was, you know, those were the two guys I learned from and tried to do everything that I did behind the plate based on what they did. Yeah, it's a common theme. I think, as you mentioned, Kevin, we, we all like the guys that come to work every day, uh, do things the, the right way. And uh, as, as I mentioned before, Sal Cal, uh, Donnie Baseball was mine too. Pete Rose, uh, Thurman Munson before he passed. Uh, Love those guys. Those were the, the guys that got down and dirty and, and, and did the, they were stars. They did the dirty work. Okay, uh, Sal, you're in the three-hole today. So you got asked a question by Bill in Missouri. Uh, his question is, with the rash of pitching injuries throughout baseball from youth to the professional leagues, 
What are your thoughts on any regulations that should happen at any point in time over a pitcher's shelf life, not excluding down to the Little League ages? Well, we might as well end the show right now. This will go on for a while. <laughs> uh, well, you know, this is something I've been talking about um, in one way or shape for years. Um, and as we get worse every year, there's uh, I think it's time for drastic action. And you have to – I, and I talk about this even our conditioning. I think we have to throw out everything we've been doing. And old elements of the program have to earn their way back in. We can no longer do things just because that's the way things have been done. That's the – the kind of a general statement, but I think there should be uh, a very uh, severe limit on pitching at the early ages. Um, we will get the paper up uh, in our Twitter feed about what actually occurs and the forces that are in play when you pitch. And it's written a little techni uh, technically, but I think the average person could understand it. When you look at how the pitch is thrown, what happens to the body, and Think of these 10, 11, 12-year-old kids pitching almost at the exclusion of other things. You see why we are now in the position we are with these kids playing baseball all year round. The genie's out of the bottle. We can't go back to the 70s where you played baseball from March 1st till the end of the summer. So what we have to do is put some severe restrictions. In my, What I would do in Little League, I think you would have a one-inning limit. I wouldn't get too hung up on pitches. I'd say you'd have to have a, an inning, and then you would have to incorporate hitting off of a, hitting from a machine or hitting off a machine. Uh, and then certainly, once you get to the sixty foot six distance, we would have to have a progressive scale of volume. And basically, what that would mean is every year you'd let the kids pitch a little more, but still have machines involved because we have to train these kids mechanically to throw properly. Uh, before we could go and have them pitch. And I think spreading that load out amongst other players and amongst a machine, uh, if that's the proper way to phrase it, it would be the only way we can try to fix this. And I don't expect anyone to want to do it. But my, um, my purpose in kind of speaking to the extreme with these is I want to hear someone defend what's being done and how these injuries – can be explained away and not a specific direct cause of how kids have been handled for now, I'm going to say at least 25 years. I think it goes deeper than that, Sal, simply because I think the Rays are a perfect example. Again, watching the game last night, they, they showed about seven Rays relief pitchers that are on the um, DL or IL, what they call it now. And these guys were all like pitching well, last year to previous year because the rate and of course everybody jumped in yeah let's go to seven or eight relievers now well you better get a new seven or eight every year because even that one inning done constantly poor mechanics or mechanics that do a certain thing to your arm or shoulder can screw you up and the fact that the rays so many rays relievers are on the il uh that just speaks volumes and i think the the biggest problem and and we do have a resident expert in bull I think the biggest problem is that the mechanics are off. And I think that's, even at a young age, if you're taught to throw properly, I think you'll be okay. But the, to me, the biggest issue, mechanics are off. They don't recognize it. And then, of course, they compound it when they use the velo, everything's velo and everything's, uh, you know, 100 miles per hour. So I think it's a, it's a really, it's a big problem. And I like what you said, though, about how we need to uh, – 
kind of start over. I think baseball needs to start over on this because I remember a conversation with Sandy Alderson six years ago saying, we're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to stop Tommy Johns in our, in our, in our, you know, in our organization. Yeah, right. Okay. Let's well, there's on. a couple of things. There's two things there. There's a, uh, across the board, uh, work, uh, d- diminution of everybody's physical conditioning. Our young kids are in worse shape today than they are. So they're not able to handle the rigors of pitching at an early age. They need to be taught. And what's going on, there's a great analogy or a story by um, this that's used by this uh, writer. He's an essayist, philosopher, Nicholas, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who's written in a fragile. But he talks at the, uh, I think he calls it the Thanksgiving Day fallacy, where turkeys think they have a great life because every day they're fed and they're taken care of. But at the end of the day, when Thanksgiving comes, that life is ending and they don't see it because everything is so great from a day-to-day basis. That's what's happening, I think, Kevin, with these teams that think they have found a way around these uh, these damaged pitchers and going to that kind of uh, uh, pitching by committee. Those guys' arms are all ruined and at some point they're going to pop. So, like you said, we have to start over. Bull, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, just, I mean, there's so many issues and, and I agree completely, you know, you know, what we're doing isn't working. So you really need to examine it and be honest and truthful. Um, I, you know, I grew up, I was a pitcher. I, I pitched, I threw every day. Um, I built arm strength. There weren't all the mechanical things out there that are available to kids now, but there's also so many things that are wrong that are available to kids and um, the weighted balls, the this, the that, that, and then the emphasis on velocity. And I mean, you know, Kevin, you were right. You know, we could go on for four or five hours here, but I, I would say the emphasis on throwing hard, the abuse by travel ball and youth coaches of kids. Um, I almost think that they should be held accountable for kids that they hurt, uh, that are gifted with good arms that they abuse. Um, You know, I'm not a big sue everybody person, but, you know, if you run a kid's arm because, because you wanted to win some travel ball tournament when the kid was 14 and you pitched him and abused him, and some of the college coaches do it, and they've done it for years. Um, it's it's not right. Um, you know, there's so much wear and tear on these kids' arms by the time the professionals get them. Um, and it's wear and tear with bad mechanics, trying to overthrow, trying to throw every pitch as hard as you can as opposed to being a pitcher. A pitcher makes pitches. You don't have to throw every fastball as hard as you can. What about so, the cutter, Will? What about the cutter? Well, the cutter, the split, uh, the, 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 the breaking balls that they're cranking instead of throwing properly, trying to get more uh, width and break to a breaking ball. Um, you know, sliders were taught as a power pitch. It was off of your fastball. You cut, you cut the ball late. You had a slight little turn, and the ball had a little six-inch late break. It wasn't thrown to miss a bat. It was thrown to miss contact, hard contact. A sinker takes away hard contact because the ball moves late. 
there was more emphasis on late movement and changing speeds years ago as opposed to throwing hard and missing bats all the time. You know, you know, if you're a starting pitcher, would you rather have a three-pitch inning or, or a 21-pitch inning that you struck out the sides? Well, I'd rather have the three-pitch inning. You know, I'm going to go seven or eight innings that night if, if, if I minimize my pitch, pitch count. So, I mean, there's so many things at issue, and I, I agree. Sal, Sal is 100% right is, you know, we got to get a grasp on it, and we got to, to, to really have a serious talk about it and fix it. I like all those ideas, and we'll certainly put that paper up on our Twitter feed that Sal mentioned. And any questions that people have on it, please email us, and we'll bring them up uh, in additional shows. Um, and then I'll keep my answer short on this one, and I would love for you guys to jump in as you see fix. I think everybody's qualified to answer this one. Uh, this is from Patsy. So we, 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 I noticed we hadn't been taking too many questions from females, so I grabbed Patsy from Tennessee, and her question was, uh, Dave, you guys do a wonderful job of talking about the mindset of the baseball player. I am a single parent and I'm at games with my son. And I've noticed that you guys are right. Parents are crazy. Could you talk to parents right now about the mindset that they should have when they walk into a youth baseball game? So um, Patsy, thanks for that question. I think uh, we all would probably have a little something to say, but I would say parents out there with your kids, whether they're eight years old or 18 years old or, college players, professional players, before you enter the gates of the field, recite or repeat this statement. It's not about me. And keep saying it till you truly believe it's not about me. There's nothing that happens in the game performance-wise, a strikeout, an error, a home run, whatever, that reflects in any way, shape, or form on you. It's about the kid. Um, there are some things, though, that I would encourage you as a parent to remind your, your son, and she asked about her son, but this includes daughters as well, <clears throat> you need to have the approach of two things. One is the game itself, and this can go with life too. It's all about teachable moments. There's a lot of things that are going to happen throughout the course of that game that as a parent on the ride home that you can talk about with your son. Um, and, and also please reinforce what the coach is trying to get done. He has them for eight hours a week. You have your child for the other 160 hours. Don't pull away from that. Try to catch on to some things that he's reinforcing and and see if your son's paying attention. But some little things to maybe preset your, your child about that, you know, you want to have them control the controllables. Don't be concerned about little things like what number he gets, what's his walk-up song, where he bats in the lineup, where he plays. Um, encourage him to hustle, as we talked about earlier. Run out every play. Sprint on and off the field. Be enthusiastic for team success. And I encourage you as a parent to do the same. Don't just root for your kid. Uh, have good body language. Be coachable when, when the coaches talk to them. That means have eyes on them, be alert, and, and communicate that stuff throughout the game. Uh, wherever he's put in the field, catcher, right field, first base, encourage him to, to be ready every single pitch. And even ask him after the game, were you in the game every pitch? Did you know how many outs there were? Did you know the situation? Encourage him to defend that area like it's his own, like it's life or death. He's got it, you know, just like John Shelby. If you're playing right field, defend that area. Back up plays. Um, echo call your catcher. I could go on for, for hours, but, um, you know, and when you go to the other side of the ball with the at-bats, have good at-bats, help them with an approach. If you don't know an approach, you know, like we mentioned on the show, you know, get a good pitch to hit and hit it. 
um, dominate the inner half and adjust to the outer half. Um, you know, those, those are just some, some little things you can encourage your, your son to do. But at the end of the day, no matter what happens, your son should always handle himself with class as should you say, please. And thank you. Make sure he thanks the coaches, make sure he thanks the umpire, make sure he handles himself with class and the, the handshake line at the end. And I think if you can encourage your son to do those things, the game eventually will take care of itself. Um, when you do good and you have a great approach and you're not worried about you and you're worried about your teammates, good things tend to happen. And I think you'll see a common theme with the guys that we like and support. I think if, outside of them playing hard, all good teammates. So that, that's my answer to you, Patsy. Thanks for the question. Hopefully I gave you enough to chew on. Um, but again, repeat that phrase. It's not about me. Let me get anything to add to that. I'll jump in first. Um, first of all, single mom taking kid there. That's fantastic. And, and don't think you're alone, Patsy, because even with great players and sons of major leaguers and coaches, look around. It's the moms that really, the moms of those players, uh, of those uh, husbands, you know, the, 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 the wives of those husbands are the ones taking the kids to games. I mean, I've, I've talked to a million moms through the years. And, and, and the players, uh, as their kids get older, they always say they credit their their mom for going, uh, you know, making sure he's at the game and stuff like that. So it's really um, it, it's it's a lot of moms that are out there making these kids better players. And uh, I appreciate that. And I know it's Father's Day, but on Mother's Day, uh, players, please give your mom a, a hug or whatever. And also, I would say the last I would say is because I think you hit a lot of the particulars, but also enjoy the moment you know after a game and and again i you know i did it with all my kids and sometimes we'd have issues or whatever but you know you try to get an icy you try to get an ice cream you try to go maybe have dinner as they go to order a diner and just relax and have fun and enjoy that moment because it goes fast uh, boy, boy you had something to add yeah uh just piggybacking on that, uh, the the memories I have growing up was uh, after game, win or lose, my dad and mom, and we didn't have a whole lot of money, but going to Mr. Softy. If you grew up in New Jersey, you kind of know what that is. It was a soft serve custard ice cream place. It was, uh, you know, we'd go and have ice cream. And every, and those are memories that live forever, but uh, for for. Uh, great question from the mom um, from Tennessee. And, you know, like Kevin said, make sure your son's having fun and enjoying it and learning the lessons of being a good teammate. Uh, be grateful for the coaches that are giving their time and efforts for your son. Um, it goes both ways. Make sure you teach your son that. And uh, just enjoy each moment on a baseball field and, all the good things that come from it. So, Sal, you wanted to add on? You know, as someone who just uh, wound up 12 years of um, being involved with my kids in the summers, especially with club, now it's lacrosse, but, you know, we have family in the baseball mix that are doing the same thing. Really enjoy the the good part of this um, little, little bit of overemphasis is that you get to spend time with your kids uh, in a in a in a way that my dad expressed to me, my dad is 85 and still comes to the games I coach, uh, and has been at everything I've done since I was in third grade. But we never had this time that I've had with my boys, 
where you get to go someplace for a weekend with a great group of people and enjoy it and actually watch your kids enjoy it. And and if your uh, perspective is proper, they'll grow in ways that you can't put a price on, even though we may uh, bitch and moan a little bit about traveling to Long Island for a tournament or having to spend money on hotels or so on and so forth. Uh, I, I'm already um, sad that this summer I won't be doing that with my boys. Um, the second part I want to keep uh, tell people is to keep in mind this uh, period with your kids, There, it's a snapshot. If your kid is the best kid early, they're probably not going to be the best kid or the chances of them being the best kid later start to diminish. The earlier they're good. Um, keep things like that in mind. Keep perspective that they're still, you know, 15-year-old kids and there's a long way to go, uh, good or bad. And that will make the whole situation more enjoyable as well. Let me just add one last thing. I think it's very important. If you're in a situation where you don't like the coach or the coach is, you can actually see the coach is not good for your kid for whatever the reason, get them on a new team. Move them somewhere else. I, I'm, I don't let, you know, don't let it, uh, you know, there's sometimes you got to be stuck with a coach, whether it's uh, through, you know, town ball or whatever. But ha don't be afraid to have a conversation with that coach if you see that coach doing something that you don't like, like, you know, screaming at the kids or whatever. Um, you you got to be, uh, you got, you, if you don't, def if you don't stick up for your kid, nobody else will. Now don't go over the top because we've talked about this as many times and be a pain in the neck. But if there's something that's wrong, don't be afraid to address it with the coach and hopefully everybody grows from it. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I always try to, and this is another thing for Patsy, great question. You see, you sparked a lot, a lot of uh, interest with it. I always try to coach my kids on how to address the coach if there's an issue. Um, that way they get that adult communication skill going on. And a kind of a, a shout to my mom, all the stuff that we talked about with moms. Uh, I always got credit for being tough as a ball player. And my dad had a lot to do with it. But I always used to tell people, I said, go meet my mom. You'll learn a little bit about toughness over there. So no baseball till homework was done. That was, that was a rule. Come home, do homework, no baseball. So Guys, great answer. Patsy, thanks for the question. All of our guests, thanks for it. Uh, Kevin, we always move into the dugout now from the clubhouse, and uh, we kind of throw it at you. I know we talked about a lot of issues in baseball today, but what's on your mind right now to kind of close the show about what you're seeing out there in the game of baseball? Yeah, what I, this is very important you know, in, in the pro ball, in the majors, what I'm seeing because it's, it's a lost art. And I want to bring up, talk about something that people don't talk about, sacrifice flies. Sacrifice flies to me is the epitome of a winning team most times. And um, you see what the Mets are doing. Um, I think the Mets are like tied for first in the majors with sacrifice flies, I think 27. And if you look at the list, it's all the teams that are doing pretty well. The Yankees are, are right behind them at 24. So uh, look, that tells me that this is a team that cares about its teammates, that, that does whatever it has to, to get the run home, and it also has a plan at the plate. You know, so there's some teams like the Angels have seven sacrifice flies. That's 20 less than the Mets. Now, some of that is circumstantial. I get it. But some of it is just, no, they're not doing the right things as players. And uh, you can see what Joe Madden might have been up against a little bit there. So sacrifice flies are my word of the words of the day. Um, the word sacrifice it explains itself. Doing something for your team and getting that run across. It's a really a great feeling for a hitter and for the whole team, and for the manager. And I think this is a testament to what uh, Showalter has brought to the Mets. Yeah. 
And do we, we put sacrifice fly, I love the word at the beginning in the same category, sacrifice bunts nowadays, where analytics and the nerds tend to look down on anything where they give up an out. Um, we, we kind of attribute it to that, I would imagine. What's the nuance yeah, of a I, sacrifice fly? I mean, what's yeah, the, what's a guy looking for at the plate? Yeah, the, yeah, well, first of all, it depends. If Dinfield's in, you know, you're trying to lift it over them and you're trying to give you – you're basically giving your guy – I think uh, – I'm trying to think who it was. I think it was Tony Perez had the best answer. He, he His answer, somebody asked him once about sacrifice flies, and he said, you know what, I'm trying to hit that ball hard. And he was an RBI guy. And this, of course, brings us to a whole nother thing. I want to – the nerds. How many times have we heard over the last five, six, seven years that RBIs are kind of lucky? You know, uh, it just so happens. No. If you look at all the good teams now and the good RBI guys – you know, there's a reason why they can drive in those runs. So they're going – the sacrifice fly, to me, is so much bigger than the bunt because, first of all, they don't work on bunts anymore, so nobody can even bunt. So I don't – I'm not a big bunt guy. Um, but to me, the sacrifice fly, getting that run home is so important, and there's so many one-run games. Again, bringing back the Rays, their record in one-run games this year is abysmal because if you watch them take swings, they're swinging from their butt, and they're, they're not getting guys moving them along. And it's to me, it's the and when you get to the playoffs, you got to have sacrifice flies. You got to have those kind of plays. So to me, sacrifice flies is the epitome of a winning team. Those that know how to do it successfully. Bull, you want yeah. to add something? Yeah, just to add to that, Kevin. It is funny. I hear analytic people say, "Well, you know, uh, you know, it's guys really don't, you know." drive in big runs. Guys don't hit in the clutch. RBIs are lucky there. And I'm going, uh, I, are you kidding me? I, you know, I've been in the game way too long and been playing way too long. There are certain people you want up when, when it counts. And you mentioned Tony Perez. He was one of them. Uh, I, I, I grew up in Philadelphia and Mike Schmidt's a hall of fame, great player. Um, but he had some swing and miss in his game. And there were a lot of times as a young Phillies fan, I wanted Greg Luzinski up because Greg Luzinski drove in 130 every year without, without the same fanfare that, that, uh, that Schmitty had because Schmitty would hit more home runs than him. But, uh, and just over the years and just in the game now, there's guys that you know, are going to put together great at bat, and you know that there's other guys that you go, ah, we're we're going to get out of this jam or whatever. So, yeah. and I like Tony Perez had a had a great career as an RBI man. And think about they say it's luck. I mean, he was hitting behind Johnny Bench as yeah. well, so there weren't many opportunities for him, and he certainly capitalized on on those opportunities here. But uh, guys, great great segment today, great mailbag segment. We appreciate all our guests, uh, the questions they asked. I thought the answers were great. Um, we encourage our audience to email us at coachingkernan at protonmail.com. We'll get back to you on every email. We get a consistent 500 every week. Um, we have now doing two shows a week. We're doing our vo- real voices of the game on Mondays and then our resident expert segment uh, where we do our mailbag in the clubhouse and then move you down to the dugout on Tuesday. So tune in both days for that. Follow us on Twitter at David Dagestine 16 on Twitter, or you can search coaching Kernan. Please follow Kevin at ball nine and you can get him on Twitter at AMBS underscore Kernan um, on, uh, on Twitter. Please support our sponsor one-on-one, one-on-one your shot on one, or you can follow them on Instagram one-on-one your shot on your terms. 
Guys, great segment today. Uh, appreciate all your answers. Very candid. I think it's a, a great follow-up from Fred Clare's interview yesterday. And we'll see you guys next week. Have a great week, guys. Thanks. Thanks.